You are listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good afternoon. I'm Jessica Matthews, President of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It's a great pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon. Uh, there have been two campaigns going on in Afghanistan for the last many years. Um, a military one that we hear a great deal about, and especially over the last two years, a very intensive diplomatic one that we hear far too little about. Because as I think everybody in this room knows, the prospects for a successful outcome in Afghanistan depend at least as much and probably more on the success of the diplomatic campaign uh, as they do uh, on the success of the military one. Or at least, at the very least, one has to say that they go um, hand in glove uh, in a way that, that is not reflected in press coverage or, or expert coverage of, of the country here at all. Um, there is no one who has a clearer sense and is in a better position to talk about that second, um, more important, I would say, campaign uh, than Ambassador Grossman. Um, we are especially honored that um, this would be the first time since he stepped down in December uh, that he has spoken publicly um, about the two intensive years that he spent working on this issue. Um, he's had five, six weeks to, or maybe a little more than that now, to back off and think about it. Uh, and so in many ways, we, we are catching him at a perfect time um, uh, to, to give us really, I think, unparalleled insight into um, the challenges that, that are ahead, particularly uh, with the election next year in Afghanistan, which will have everything to say about whether the country um, manages to, to come out of this period um, sovereign, whole, and reasonably peaceful. Um, Ambassador Grossman picked up this challenge um, in 2011, having retired from an extraordinarily successful Foreign Service career several years before that. Um, he had really uniquely wide experience uh, in this region for this job. Um, he had been ambassador to Turkey. He had been assistant secretary of state for European affairs. And he had held the number three job in the State Department under secretary for political affairs. Um, uh, and so, and had um, earned uh, the career, the Foreign Service highest award of career ambassador. He'd been executive secretary of the State Department and, uh, and was awarded the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award for his uh, service. Um, after the death of Ambassador Holbrook, uh, Secretary Clinton and President Obama asked, asked Mark if he would come back and, and pick up this portfolio, um, which he did. Um, we are, uh, I think as Americans here anyway, all enormously grateful to him um, for his public service for doing that and, uh, and for, for coming back today to, to share his thoughts uh, with us on what lies ahead in, in, the, in the silent campaign um, in Afghanistan. So please join me in, in welcoming uh, Ambassador Grossman. Thank you very much. These wires out of the way. 
Well, Jessica, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. I've had a chance uh, a number of occasions to stand at this podium and uh, talk about uh, foreign policy issues, but I'm very glad to be here today to talk a little bit about this diplomatic campaign uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I must say one of the good things about uh, speaking to a Washington audience uh, is is that when uh, Jessica goes, goes through these various jobs that you have, everyone in Washington goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. I was the other day uh, someplace uh, not in Washington, D.C., uh, talking not about Afghanistan or Pakistan. And someone said, kind of took through this career and said, and finally went, here's Ambassador Grossman. What an extinguished career. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> how this is at the moment. Um, I, I also want to say how, what a pleasure it is to see so many people here uh, in the audience um, who I have had the great benefit of learning from for many years. And without kind of drawing any distinctions, I hope you'll allow me three. Uh, first of all, I see uh, Ambassador Howard Schaefer here in the audience, and many of you know that I started my career, as Jessica said, in Pakistan, 1977 to 79, as a junior officer. And it wasn't Howie, actually, that was my first boss in Pakistan. It was Tazy, uh, but then uh, moved on, and Howie was also uh, a boss of mine. I see also Ambassador Tokir Hussein here as well, who at that time was a Pakistani diplomat, and indeed the first foreign diplomat I had ever met, <laughs> and uh, first foreign diplomat I ever had to do business with in Tokir. I'm very glad to see you. And strangely enough as well, Simon Henderson, now at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, uh, was a stringer for a number of very important publications then, including the BBC and the Financial Times, and uh, he taught me a lot about uh, journalism. And I know there are many others uh, in this room as well, but those three sort of take me all the way back uh, to Pakistan, 1977, 78, 1979. Uh, Jessica, you set the standard about, you know, very clear perfect timing. Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, We'll see what you all say when this is over. Uh, What I want to try to do today is take up the offer that I was given uh, by Carnegie, just to give you a little reflection uh, after these weeks uh, about the diplomatic campaign in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I don't pretend that this is comprehensive. I don't pretend to answer everybody's questions. I just want simply to give my perception of what it was we tried to accomplish on behalf of the United States in 2011 and 2012 in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And as Jessica did, I think it's important to kind of step back uh, to January 1st of 2009. And you'll all remember that when President Obama and Secretary Clinton appointed Dick Holbrooke as the special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan in January of 2009, I believe they were trying to send a message beyond South Asia. Yes, there was a message to Afghanistan and Pakistan, but there was also a message about how diplomacy should be done. And there was a message about the importance of the whole of government, this philosophy that you can draw on expertise from all around the U.S. government and indeed from governments, allied, friendly partners, and pursue a whole-of-government idea in a new and unique way to do business. And many people in this room, the Carnegie Endowment, for example, others, had called for that kind of further whole-of-government experiment. And, of course, in December of 2009, Secretary Clinton herself issued the QDDR, the Quadrennial Diplomacy Development Review, in which she talked about the importance of this. It was interesting to me that uh, when Dick died in December of 2010, you know, a number of people said, well, will this experiment continue? You know, will the special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan go on, whole-of-government, unique way, to try to do business in that area. And certainly when she uh, asked me whether I would 
take this responsibility on. Among the things that Secretary Clinton made clear was that she wanted the SRAP effort not just to continue, to succeed. And I felt that beyond the substance of Afghanistan and Pakistan, part of my responsibility was to continue this whole-of-government effort called the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I'll come back to that, I hope, a number of times during this short reflection. So what I say, I'd like to talk about the building, a, building this whole-of-government campaign, built obviously on the job that had been done already, that I inherited in 2009-2010 by Dick and the wonderful people who worked in the Special Representative Afghanistan and Af Afghanistan and Pakistan office. And so I'll talk a little bit about this campaign, and then perhaps if you'd allow me, draw just some short and modest judgments uh, about future policy in the region and about modern diplomacy. It was President Obama, of course, who laid the foundations for the job that I took on in 2011 through his efforts in 2009, 2010, particularly speeches, for example, at West Point in 2009. But I think it was Secretary Clinton, for me anyway, who really launched this diplomatic effort at a speech she gave in honor of Dick Holbrook at the Asia Society in February of 2011. And you remember at that speech, perhaps, that the Secretary talked about three surges, three efforts in Afghanistan. First of all, the military surge. And the surge was going on then in February of 2011. You recall she said that it needed to be supported, needed to be continued, and that the great sacrifice that not just American, but also allied and partner and friend military forces were making was crucial to the possibility, as Jessica said, of coming to some peaceful conclusion in Afghanistan. She also, I think, very importantly reminded her audience of what she called the civilian surge that was then underway in Afghanistan. The effort by the then 1,200, over 1,200 Americans, courageous Americans, people from the international community, and Afghans as well, who were there working on development and governance and the kind of future structures of the government of Afghanistan along with the Afghans. And I think it's worth just stopping for a moment here in March of 2013 Allow me to say that I think that civilian surge had, at that time, some important positive developments. And I'll give you some, I believe, positive developments from today. Allow me a couple of examples, if you would. 2002, 900,000 Afghan children were in school, all boys. In 2011, sorry, 2012, I apologize, 8 million Afghan students were in school. 40% of them were girls. Life expectancy had increased in Afghanistan by 15 years to over 60 over the last 10 years. In 2001, there were 21,000 cell phone contracts in Afghanistan. There are today 16 million. And there are today over 75 television stations, 175 radio stations, all but two are privately owned. And obviously there are many, many things yet to be done in Afghanistan, but it's worth stopping for a moment and recognizing that civilian surge that Secretary Clinton talked about in February of 2011 had and has had, I think, some important developments. You'll remember from that speech, though, that she said there was a missing piece, that there was a diplomatic surge yet to come to match the effort that was being made on the military side and also on the civilian side. 
And her challenge to the special representative of Afghanistan and Pakistan, not just the person, but this office, was to see if we could develop and then pursue a diplomatic campaign to match the military and civilian efforts. That meant engaging the countries of the region, I think especially Pakistan, as the Secretary said in that speech. It also meant trying to sustain a dialogue with the Taliban to convince them that they would never win militarily and the United States would support the reconciliation of those insurgents who, you recall, she said, met three important end conditions, breaking with al-Qaeda, ending their violence, and living inside of a constitution of Afghanistan, which guaranteed the rights of all individuals and especially the rights of women. After that speech, we gathered ourselves in the Special Representative of Afghanistan and Pakistan's office, and the question was obvious. How do we now carry out this diplomatic campaign? And I would just say we chose deliberately the word campaign because we wanted to show that successful diplomacy doesn't just happen by accident, that successful diplomacy is about having a plan and about having a national strategy. I think it's also very important, if you'd allow me, so I reflect back on this time, to recognize that the other thing that we had to do was to harness the power, the reality, of what I'd call simultaneity. In other words, making sure that everything that we did in this diplomatic campaign was connected to everything else. And the diplomatic campaign was also connected to our military efforts and the efforts on civilian development. It meant harnessing all of the measures and all of the instruments of non-military power in South Asia and Central Asia that the United States could bring to bear, including official development assistance, involvement of the private sector, support, as I say, for civil society, and the use of both bilateral and multilateral instruments of diplomacy. And so again, beginning on the work, building on the work that was done in 2009 and 2010, and the military and civilian efforts underway, we laid out for ourselves three objectives for this campaign of 2011-2012. We sought first to create a regional structure to support a secure, stable, and prosperous Afghanistan inside of a secure, stable, and prosperous region. Second, as I said, we set out to try to sustain a dialogue with the Taliban and other insurgents. And third, we want to engage the leadership of Pakistan in a useful conversation to seek their crucial contribution to an Afghan peace process and connect them to regional structures to support Afghanistan that would, of course, we hope, also benefit themselves. Having set these objectives, we then have reviewed the diplomatic calendar. And we devised a roadmap to create the regional structure needed to support Afghanistan. We tried to pursue this regional structure and this roadmap by shaping and guiding and leveraging four international meetings that were already set for 2011 and 2012. You'll recall first a meeting of Afghanistan's neighbors in Istanbul in November of 2011, a meeting then in Bonn of the international community in December of 2012, the NATO summit hosted here by President Obama in Chicago in the United States, in May of 2012, and a conference in Tokyo hosted by the Japanese government on the 8th of July, 2012. And our objective, our idea, starting then in March of 2011, 
was to try to imagine what we could accomplish when foreign ministers stood up on the 8th of July, 2012, in other words, at the end of the Tokyo session, for the United States, the international community, Afghanistan, and the region. And we then organized all of our activities to try to meet those goals. We sought simultaneously to integrate every aspect of the diplomatic campaign to achieve the most comprehensive outcome. So trips and conversations and work with other governments were all sort of drawn together to try to pursue these objectives. And we tried to make sure that each one of the four conferences built on the one before. We didn't want to just sort of sleepwalk our way through this year, year and a half. We wanted to pursue these four conferences in a way that would bring about a comprehensive achievement in July of 2012. I should say that kind of one of the things I greatly benefited from, and here again, something that Dick had done, which was he'd created something called the International Contact Group, which turned out by that time to be a group of about 50 nations, many of them Muslim, who were a great support uh, in all of this effort. Let's take you, if I can, just a little bit through each one of these meetings and try to kind of give you a sense of how one worked with another and built on one after another. The government of Turkey obviously took the lead in organizing the Heart of Asia Conference in Istanbul in November of 2011. And the SRAP team undertaking extensive travel and meetings and efforts and all the things that you expect diplomats to do supported the Turkish government's goal to have the region speak for itself about what it would be like to have a secure, stable, and prosperous Afghanistan inside of a secure, stable, and prosperous region. And at the conclusion of the meeting, I think it's worth reminding people that Iran and Russia and China and India and Pakistan all signed the Istanbul Declaration, which described a powerful vision for the region and mandated specific follow-up actions in areas such as investment and counterterrorism, border control, counter-narcotics, and as I say, efforts to increase uh, trade and investment. And there have been a number of meetings, as you all know, in this Heart of Asia process since November of 2011. The German government, about a month later, had deliberately set the date of the Bonn Conference of 2011 on the anniversary of the 2001 meeting that had established the structure of the current government of Afghanistan. And again, the SRAP team, all of the SRAP team, made this enormous effort in support of success for the German government and the international community in Bonn. And on December the 5th, 2011, 85 nations, 15 international organizations, the United Nations got together in Bonn to review the progress of the previous 10 years, but more importantly, send the message to Afghans that the, that, that the period after 2014 would be a time when the international community would still be engaged in Afghanistan. And again, those of you who follow this know, we called it the transformational decade, 2014-2024. The decisions taken in Bonn, I believe, meant that the world would not abandon Afghanistan. And in return, the government of Afghanistan began to make clear and specific promises to its supporters on governance, women's rights, and economic development. For me, it was very important that these two conferences, Istanbul Bull and Bonn, work together also in this way of diplomacy. You know, I didn't want 
the Istanbul Conference or the Bonn Conference to be, the Bonn Conference really, to be a place where kind of the international community told other people how they should live. I wanted the Bonn Conference to endorse the efforts of Istanbul so that we could say that the, that the region itself had a vision of the future that the international community could support. At the Chicago summit, hosted by President Obama, the ISAF countries, as you all know, got together and took two decisions that were very important to this diplomatic campaign. First, the NATO, that NATO set a milestone date in mid-2013 when consistent with the Lisbon decisions, 100% of Afghan territory would be Afghan-led security forces. And that means that while the international community would no longer be engaging in combat, but we in support of uh, efforts, uh, sorry, the, that while the international community would still engage in combat, Afghans would be in the lead everywhere in their country by that time. And secondly, also very important, is that as a result of a whole-of-government international diplomatic campaign carried out in close coordination with the governments of Denmark and the United Kingdom, allies and partners there at, uh, there at Chicago pledged $4.1 billion a year for 2015, 2016, and 2017 to sustain and support the Afghan National Security Forces, both military and police. Move with me now, if you will, to Tokyo in July of 2012. The government of Japan, with our support, sought there to highlight the crucial future role official development assistance would make to the transformational decade that had been agreed to in Bonn. And if you think about it this way, at Chicago, people figured out try to how to pay for the security aspects of the transformational decade. That $4.1 billion you recall in 15, 16, and 17 for the Afghan National Security Forces. And similarly in Tokyo, the international community looked for a way to pay for the requirements of the official development assistance, the aid, the other efforts on governance which would continue in the transformational decade, raising $4 billion a year in 2012, 13, 14, and 15. There was another very important aspect of Tokyo that I think gets pushed away sometimes, and that's the mutual accountability framework that the government of Afghanistan made its pledges to the international community about governance and about the elections in 2014 and about the role of women in Afghan society. And I think that this mutual accountability framework is something that my successors and those of you who follow this for years to come will have to come back and back and back to to judge the success of that conference and the success of that effort against the mutual accountability framework. There were two other really important parts of this regional campaign that we tried to pursue that I'd like to spend a couple of minutes talking about. And first of those is the web of strategic partnership agreements that are being created between Afghanistan and its neighbors and its allies. And again, you'll recall that the first of these strategic partnership agreements was signed between Afghanistan and India in October of 2011. The U.S.-Afghan strategic partnership agreement negotiated, as I must say, through an extremely creative diplomatic effort on, led on our side by Ryan Crocker and John Allen and Beth Jones was signed by President Obama in Kabul on May the 1st, 2012. And I think it's important, again, as you kind of consider this going forward, that the U.S.-Afghan Strategic Partnership Agreement is more than 
just a military agreement. It, ta- it speaks to the whole relationship that's possible between Afghanistan and the United States and its commitment to tolerance, pluralism, individual rights, economic growth, and future consultation between Afghanistan and the United States. And again, you'll know now that since that time, a number of other governments have signed SPAs with Afghanistan, including the UK, France, Italy, Germany, Norway, and China. The second part of this regional campaign, in addition to the efforts we made at Istanbul, Bonn, Chicago, and Tokyo, and this SPA web of uh, networks that I've just described, is to me also really important and something that I think sometimes uh, is pushed a little bit to the side. And that is we came to the recognition, as we looked at the possibilities, that no regional structure in support of Afghanistan has the possibility of succeeding without a strong economic component, including a role for the private sector. And Secretary of State Clinton announced the U.S. vision for this, the New Silk Road, we called it, in a speech in Chennai, India, on July the 20th, 2011. We thought of this campaign, or this part of the campaign, the New Silk Road, based on historic trade routes, as a way to try to connect Central Asian economies with South Asian economies, with Afghanistan and Pakistan in the center. And indeed, President Karzai would talk about Afghanistan as being a Central Asian roundabout through which goods and services could move from Central Asia to South Asia. And I thought that was right. I also thought that that might be just the beginning, that a connection between Central Asian economies and South Asian economies might also lead not just to transit benefits for Afghanistan and Pakistan, but perhaps someday also to foreign direct investment and other economic ties. And it's why we worked so hard on some of the components of this area. Again, Dick Holbrook in the two years he was the special representative worked so hard to finally finish the Afghan-Pakistan Transit Trade Agreement, which we've completed uh, in 2011. Secretary Clinton talks in her speech about the importance of the increasing India-Pakistan trade. And there are a number of other, what I would consider to be proofs of concept of this effort on the New Silk Road, including the 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 Turkmenistan-Afghanistan-Pakistan-India pipeline, as I say, the transit trade agreement, and in fact that the U.S. Geological Survey did some work in 2010-2011 talking about the possibilities in Afghanistan for investments there uh, in very important areas uh, such as minerals. I'd say one other thing, again, to this audience I hope has meaning. And here again, we tried to pursue this as a whole-of-government effort. And so Assistant Secretary Blake, Undersecretary Hormats, and the head of OPIC, Elizabeth Littlefield, everybody kind of working together along with the SRAP office and the White House trying to move this effort on the new Silk Road going forward. Also, it seems to me, that the New Silk Road highlights that aspect of the diplomacy that I talked about in the beginning, which is the power of simultaneity. I was rereading these past few weeks because I've had a little time to do some reading. Uh, Philip Bobbitt's very important book, Terror and Consent. And I give you this quotation. It's only one of a couple of quotations, but I hope you'll listen to this. The problem is the picture of warfare to which we cling. The picture unfolds this way, peacemaking by diplomats, war-making by the armed forces, peace-building by USAID and other reconstruction personnel. But the reality of 21st century warfare is that all these tasks must be performed simultaneously. And when you apply that thought to 
to the new Silk Road, I think what you find is that it provides incentives, for example, for insurgents to give up their fight. It could promote the crucial role of women in development. A new Silk Road would signal to taxpayers in donor countries that their commitments are not about forever. And tying development assistance to the larger vision of connecting Central Asian and South Asian economies makes the new Silk Road a quintessential whole of government operation. I know many of you have seen the book by Robert Kaplan, Monsoon. And he says there, I think importantly, that stabilizing Afghanistan is about more than just the anti-terror war against al-Qaeda or the Taliban. It's about securing the future prosperity of the whole of southern Eurasia, as well as easing India and Pakistan toward peaceful coexistence through the sharing of energy routes. So come back with me now to February of 2011. Our effort to create this diplomatic campaign starts, as I say, with the regional aspect, which I've tried to describe, and then moves on, of course, as I said, to trying to sustain a dialogue with the Taliban in order to secure the creation of an Afghan-led peace process. I remind you again that in her speech, Secretary Clinton laid out three conditions, not preconditions, but end conditions, for those Taliban who ultimately chose to reconcile and live in peace in Afghanistan. Break with al-Qaeda, the end of violence, and living inside of an Afghanistan, Afghan constitution, which protected the rights of all individuals, minority groups, and especially women. You know, in that speech, she also referred to the challenges of talking with enemies. And she recognized the difficulty of talking to insurgents, saying that diplomacy would be easy if we only had to talk to our friends, but that's not how one makes peace. And she concluded that testing the Taliban's willingness to talk and accept the end conditions were worth the risk. Again, those of you who may have read Mitchell Reese, the former director of policy planning, wrote a book called Negotiating with Evil. And he spent a couple of years kind of talking to people who'd been involved in these kinds of negotiations all around the world. And he talked to them about the ambiguity of speaking to people who are insurgents, speaking to people who, in his book, listed through, are terrorists. And it was interesting to me that the people who were involved in this type of negotiation in the end balanced their ambiguities by the realization that if negotiation were to succeed, and this is a quote from Mitchell, there aren't so many funerals. So the purpose, as I say, of the several contacts between U.S. officials and the Taliban that took place in 2011-2012 was to try to negotiate a series of confidence-building measures that would open the door for the Afghan government to talk to the insurgents about the future of Afghanistan. And the details of these meetings you know, obviously remain confidential. But in March of 2012, the Taliban chose to suspend talks with the United States. We tried to answer this in a speech that Secretary Clinton gave in April of 2012, where she said that the United States remained committed to supporting Afghan reconciliation, and the goal was to open the door for Afghans to sit down with other Afghans to talk about the future of their country. And she noted in that speech at Hampton Roads that the Taliban have their own choice to make. We'll continue to apply military pressure, but we're prepared to work with Afghans who are committed to an inclusive reconciliation process that leads toward peace and toward security. I've also reflected these past few weeks that although direct contact with the United States and the Taliban has not restarted, 
the idea that there should be, that there needs to be, or must be, an Afghan peace process is certainly now on the international agenda. And I was struck by the meeting in February of President Karzai and President Zardari and Prime Minister Cameron making a pledge you know, to move quickly uh, toward peace. And so there may not be these direct contacts, but I think that the effort to promote peace in Afghanistan uh, is certainly one that people will continue to make. A couple of words, if I could, about Pakistan, and then I'll conclude. 2011 was, not, was a terrible year in U.S.-Pakistan relations. In February and March, the Raymond Davis case mesmerized both governments. In May, U.S. Special Forces killed Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. In September 2011, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul was attacked by fighters from the Haqqani network. And on November 26, 2011, 24 Pakistani soldiers were accidentally killed on the Pakistan-Afghanistan border by U.S. aircraft. It was at that point, after this event in November of 2011, that the leadership in the United States decided to sort of step back and let Pakistanis debate for themselves what it would be, when it would be possible to re-engage with the United States. And again, those of you who know this story will remember that in April of 2012, the Pakistani parliament approved recommendations of the Parliamentary Committee on National Security for U.S.-Pakistan relations. And in Washington, we read these recommendations and recognized that there were good parts and bad parts and mixed parts of them, but we felt that it formed the basis for a re-engagement with Pakistan. A number of us had a chance to travel there, and when Secretary Clinton met President Zardari in Chicago in May, the two sides agreed to draft a work plan for the next six months, including reopening of the ground lines of communication from Afghanistan through Pakistan, and Deputy Secretary of State Nides and Foreign, uh, I'm sorry, Finance Minister Sheikh accomplished that task uh, some months later. A focus on supporting the Afghan peace process, joint counterterrorism efforts, and a recognition that it was time to move the U.S.-Pakistan economic relationship from one that was centered on U.S. aid to Pakistan to one based on trade and investment. Secretary Clinton met Foreign Minister Khar in Tokyo in July and in Washington in September, and then again with President Zardari in September that same month. Intense work at lower levels had produced a number of actions and agreements, including restarting a number of working groups on key subjects, following the general philosophy that Pakistan and the United States ought to be able systematically to identify their shared interests and act on them jointly. And obviously there's a huge amount yet to be done in U.S.-Pakistan relations, but I think it was fair to report in December of 2012 that relations were better than they were in 2011. One very important part of this conversation between the United States and Pakistan in 2011-2012 was the effort that the Pakistanis made to support an Afghan peace process. And you recall that in 2011, we created the U.S.-Pakistan-Afghanistan core group, which met eight times over the period, including once at the level of Secretary Clinton and Foreign Minister Khar in Tokyo, and in core group meetings, and more importantly in bilateral meetings between Pakistan and Afghanistan, Pakistan had become more and more open about their support for an Afghan peace process and ready to engage through the core group. When I think about 
this diplomatic campaign in Afghanistan and Pakistan in 2011-2012, I consider it to be not just a vehicle of policy, but as I say, because of the whole of government aspects of it, a way to think about diplomacy and a way to think about the interaction of diplomacy with the other aspects of national power. And I came to five conclusions at this point, or five lessons, if I might. First, that there's no success without recognizing and then harnessing this power of simultaneity, that it's all connected. And unless you deal with it in a connected way, there's no possibility that one will succeed. In a way, I thought perhaps one of the best statements of this was the statement that President Obama made after signing the Strategic Partnership Agreement in Kabul in May of 2012. And you recall he talked about the five lines of America's effort in Afghanistan. Transition, training and assisting the NSF, creating an enduring partnership, supporting the Afghan peace process and working with the region. But the important thing was that all these lines of effort have to work together. Second, it seems also clear to me that success is also impossible without allies and friends and partners. And the sacrifice of so many ISAF members and others in the international community is worthy not just of recognition, but of understanding that the broader the coalition, especially if coalition members are also organizing themselves using whole-of-government principles, the greater the chance of success. I'd also say that going forward here, in terms of allies and partners and friends, it's also vital now that the pledges that were made in Chicago, $4 billion, 15, 16, and 17 for the NSF, and $16 billion in Tokyo, $4 billion and 12, 13, 14, and 15, turn into real money and that they don't remain just pledges. Because I believe that with this support, Afghans will have a fighting chance to protect and even press forward the gains they've made since 2001 at great cost to Afghans, to Americans, allies, friends, and partners. It's also crucial that the government of Afghanistan keep its promises through the mutual accountability framework from Tokyo, especially on the role of women in society. Third, that without losing sight of Pakistan's social and political challenges, I think the United States can continue to take steps with Pakistan to promote further counterterrorism cooperation, support for peace in Afghanistan, and very importantly, from my perspective anyway, effort on this new Silk Road and moving from an assistance-based relationship with Pakistan to something based more on the private sector and foreign direct investment. And I think, as we saw in the newspaper today, with the announcement of the change in government in Pakistan to get ready uh, for an election, that the United States does all it can to support a transparent, legitimate election in Pakistan in 2013 so that there can be a peaceful transfer of civilian power to other civilians. Fourth, very important, what the locally supported government does is crucial, especially in the areas of governance, anti-corruption, women's rights. And the growth of a strong civil society is a foundation for the possibility of success. I think also that there will be continued effort uh, on this Afghan peace process. But Americans need to be patient and to remember that it's for Afghans to decide their own future and that there can be really no reconciliation until the Taliban meets those end conditions without breaking with al-Qaeda and ending violence 
and prepared to live inside of a government, a society in Afghanistan that protects individual rights and certainly those of women. And finally, fifth, to get the civil-military coordination right. And there are challenges, obviously, in achieving this, including bureaucratic norms, the difficulty of fighting and talking at the same time, but there's really no substitute for unity of effort. And while diplomacy must be backed by force, the non-military instruments of power need to be organized into a coherent whole and a whole of government campaign and supported in the same way as the military effort. And I hope that Secretary Kerry, and I don't know what he will do, and he would have to speak for himself, but I think there's some argument for keeping this Office of the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan until December 2014, when it fits then um, with the other transitions. Obviously, the question that sits is the question of the future. And I think this is really a matter of a number of ifs. And that is to say, first of all, that if Afghanistan and the international community can meet the obligations inherent in the three transitions in 2014, not just one, but three, the military transition prescribed by Lisbon, the constitutional transition through Afghan law and the election, and the very important economic transition that will take place in 2014, as well as military spending and official development assistance goes down. Be crucial, it seems to me, that those three transitions uh, go well, and that Afghans have this capacity to fight for uh, what it is that they've achieved at great cost over these many years. So I conclude by saying that, again, while not an answer to all questions, while a lot of work gets to be done. Those of you who served in government know that service in government really is like a relay race. And you get the baton, and you run as fast as you can, and you do the best you can, you give that baton to the next person in the relay. And that's where we are in this race. But the diplomatic campaign of 2011 and 2012, I would submit to you, in some modest way made progress and laid a foundation for the people who will now take on this responsibility. So thank you very much for listening to me, and I look forward to answering your questions. You want to sit down, stand up, or do you like? Whatever you're most comfortable doing, you have both mics. So, okay. And, All right. and if you want to call on people, would you let me too? All right, go ahead. All right. Right here, we'll start. Please wait for the mics. And please identify yourself. Uh, yes, sir. My name is Kami Bhatt, and I write for the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is about the new formulation that we designed in Afghanistan, armed forces. Pashtun population is more than 50% of Afghanistan, whereas the new armed forces that we help to design, mm-hmm. they have less than 5% representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see any potential problem because of that? And maybe this was the reason General Kiani was opposing the formulation of this because he knew this would be a potential threat to Pakistan. Uh-huh. In other words, we have prepared Northern Alliance uh-huh. against Saudi Arabia and against Pakistan in, in maybe five years down the road right. when U.S. Uh, Congress has hesitated to, to, to keep funding those forces. Uh-huh. And the second question, the same Ma- set, Maybe we should just do one because uh, there's lots. Aren't we perpetuating Iranian? I mean, on the one hand, we are trying to contain Iran, and on the second hand, we are making Iran very forceful in Af- what we did in, uh, in Iraq and what we did in Afghanistan. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you very much. Do you want to just answer each question as we go along? Should we take three? And- as you wish. Okay. 
Uh, we're going to just collect a few gentlemen here. And Ambassador Schaefer, I think we'd better take them. <laughs> Uh, I'm Howard Schaefer, Georgetown University. Um, thank you very much, Mark, for that nice shout-out. And I will pass word to my wife as well. Thank you. Um, I wonder, as you look back at your achievements and what you face in these tough years, and this is a tough question for you, whether there are a couple of things that, in retrospect, you would have done differently. And I think it might help as we look back. You came up with a few notions. Uh, my name is uh, Arnold Zeitlin, <clears throat> and um, I opened up the first Associated Press Bureau in Pakistan uh -huh. many years ago, uh -huh. just before you arrived. Uh -huh. uh, I'd like to know if anyone, including yourself, in the U.S. government, uh, believes it's possible to eliminate the Taliban or supporters of Taliban ideology, whether they uh, uh, give up any connection with al-Qaeda in any future Afghanistan. Okay. Do those three? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, thank you all very much. Um, let me, first of all, uh, answer the question, if I can, uh, on the ANSF. Uh, and, I, and I try to answer it in this way. Uh, first of all, obviously, there's a huge amount of effort being made to try to make sure the ANSF accurately reflects um, the population in Afghanistan. Will that be successful? Well, that's the goal. Um, and so we have to, there's a lot of work yet to be done on, on that question. Uh, I think you raise a very important point about the Pakistani view of the ANSF. And obviously... Uh, I will let General Kayani speak for himself. Um, but let me tell you um, that I always felt that in Pakistan, especially in 2011, uh, people said two things about the ANSF. Uh, number one uh, is that it was too large. And number two, no one in Pakistan in 2011 felt that it could be sustained at that six, eight billion dollar level sort of going on into the future. Uh, and I think one of the things that perhaps uh, might be considered uh, useful uh, in Islamabad, if they were analyzing this, uh, is uh, that the number of ANSF, I think, is designed to to go down uh, over time. And again, I uh, the reason I spent so much time uh, in talking about uh, Chicago uh, was because uh, we believed that over time uh, that you couldn't sustain an Afghan national security force with, with the United States paying $6 billion, $8 million a year, uh, and that this had to become a larger international effort. And if you'll recall, sir, uh, the way the math works uh, is that the government of Afghanistan, starting in 2015, puts in $500 million of its own money. Uh, the international community at Chicago pledged $1.1 billion a year for each of those years. And the United States said that it would kind of work on the rest. And so that gives you a $4.1 billion Afghan national security force. I don't know exactly what number it'll turn out to be, but different than $6 billion or $8 billion a year. And so, again, General Kanai can speak for himself, um, but I think if his worry was too big, couldn't possibly sustain, be sustained, I think over time uh, people came to recognize that as a, uh, as a useful argument. Um, on the question of the neighbors, um, you know, the issue of the neighbors here is the reason that we put so much effort in this diplomatic campaign on the question of Istanbul. And again, let me be clear, I recognize my bias. You know, I'm a diplomat. So I like this, you know, I like the conferences. I like that one follows the other. I, I understand that. Um, but, I, but I ask you not to just sort of 
rejected out of hand because it's diplomacy. Uh, I think in this case, and the argument I make to you is it's important. Uh, and the fact that a number of countries, including Iran, uh, did sign the Istanbul document, and Iran participated then in Bonn and in Tokyo, uh, means that you know, they have their own interests there. Now, obviously, people have to be careful of what their, those interests are, but part of a regional conversation, you know, I, I, I think, you know, has to recognize uh, what, they're, what they're about as well. Um, on, the, on the issue of, um, that Ambassador Schaefer raised, um, you know, I appreciate what you say about it as I look back on the ch- achievements. Well, we'll see. Um, you know, we did the best we could. Um, as you say, this is a challenging portfolio. Uh, the people who worked in that SRAP office with me were just wonderful and excellent. Um, so any achievements really kind of are there, uh, are to them really, and, and not to me at all. Um, I, I think in terms of done differently, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the things was that we, is that we left this diplomacy, Istanbul, Bonn, Chicago, Tokyo, sort of too much into the kind of specialists piece of this. And, um, I guess I'd have been perhaps more forceful in, in, in talking about it. One, because I think it was the right policy, we'll see, um, but also because um, it talks about the importance of diplomacy uh, to people in the United States. And I think we've, we may have missed an opportunity there. I hope we'll try to rectify that um, at, 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 at events like this. Um, finally, um, in terms of the Taliban, uh, I think what Secretary Clinton said in Hampton Roads uh, was right, which is that the Taliban has a choice to make. And if you say to me, sir, uh, will there ever be a time when 100% of the Taliban uh, are going to agree to X, Y, and Z, let's say the three end conditions, or reconcile with the Afghan government, I can't imagine. Um, the issue is how many, what percent, and when. Um, and so I think if you set a standard that says you're only successful if 100% of the Taliban do X, Y, and Z, um, I, I think you set, a, you, set, you, you set too high of a standard. But, but again, I go back to what Mr. Clinton said. They have a choice to make. And if you'd allow me one other thing, um, which is to say if you, and again, you know, this doesn't get reported very much, but if you look at the five, eight examples that I gave you about the difference in Afghan society today than it was in 2001 or 2003, you know, part of the reason to recognize those statistics um, is not to say that everything is perfect in Afghanistan. It's not. But the reason to recognize those statistics is is that when the Taliban try this effort to say we're coming back, you know, you, there, there, there ought to be in Afghanistan a core of people who will say, excuse me, it's actually your job to accommodate to the changes that have happened in Afghan society over the past 10 years, not our job to accommodate to you. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I think you have to recognize that it's not the same um, and that there are changes there. And as I said in my uh, presentation, the question now is how to, is, is, is Afghans fighting for that, the opportunities that they have, uh, and uh, the international community finding ways to support that? So, lady right here. Um, hi, Ambassador Grossman. This is Simbel Khan from uh, Wilson Center. Hi. Um, yes. Yes, are we meeting tomorrow? Yes. Yes, absolutely. good. <laughs> 
Um, so, <laughs> um, my two questions are related to first the diplomatic campaign that you talked about, uh -huh. and a little bit about the regional structure. Uh -huh. um, I mean, I've seen you in action in Islamabad, and I know your work has been tireless, and the other diplomats in your office have been working tirelessly. And uh, but, but. <laughs> the big but is that um, uh, you stated that ha that the diplomatic campaign has to run parallel to a military campaign. But uh -huh. as far as U.S.-Pakistan relations are concerned, won't you agree to the fact that basically what the diplomatic campaign was doing was firefighting to contain the fallout from the military campaign and how that impacted uh, relations. It was basically the military breakdown on various kinds of security-related relations, be that the counterterrorism strategy or basically the military campaign in Afghanistan that led to a breakdown in U.S.-Pakistan relations and the diploma diplomatic campaign that you ran there most of the time, at least in your two years, was trying to just contain that fallout. And and now when you see the improvement that you talked about in U.S.-Pakistan relations right now, that there is a simultaneity with the, with the drawdown setting in Afghanistan. As your military role in Afghanistan diminishes, the diplomatic campaign is a little more successful. And the other question about the regional structure, I tend to disagree with you. I don't see any kind of a strong regional structure left in the region at all on Afghanistan. Uh, Istanbul a conference, I think you were there engaging very deeply and uh, many of us were also engaging with that. There was huge disappointment in the people who were organizing the Istanbul conference. The Norwegians were playing a big role, spoke to their rep, spoke to other people in the U.S. Embassy also. Um, there was the, in the end, what came out of the Istanbul conference, the, the declaration that everybody signed was watered-down version of the original document. Uh, there, there are differences, regional differences between India, Pakistan. There are differences with Iran. There are differences with Uzbekistan. Didn't sign that Istanbul uh, uh, declaration. So, uh, just your comments on that. Thank you. Maybe we'll take since that was okay. too extensive. Question. Okay. Uh, fine. Um, well, first of all, Professor, I, I, let me just say that on U.S.-Pakistan relations, um, you know, you can describe. Uh, the events of 2011 as you wish. I think uh, the events of 2011 were both diplomatic and military. And so I really didn't spend too much of my time kind of thinking, well, if only, you know, this hadn't happened, then I, I my job um, was to, as given to me by Secretary Clinton, um, was to see if I couldn't kind of engage the Pakistanis in some reasonable way, as I say, and my philosophy was throughout that there ought to, it ought to be possible for Pakistan and the United States to uh, systematically systematically uh, recognize and identify their shared interests and act on them jointly. And I think that's a perfectly good goal. Um, and if that's part of the military effort, terrific. It's part of the, if it's part of the diplomatic effort, that's fine too. But we ought to be able to do that thing um, together. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, again, I recognize my bias. Uh, we're talking here about diplomacy. Um, but I think that the idea, with all due respect, of, um, of spending your time uh, trying to work your way through problems and spending your time recognizing that life's not perfect and it could get better, I think that's an honorable way to spend time. I mean, you know, one of the things I think about um, not being a diplomat is, is that one of the, the good things about not being a diplomat is you get to set high standards. You know, and so you say, well, it wasn't perfect. You know, it didn't work out exactly the way you wanted it to. You know, one of the jobs, I think, of this profession for the United States, and I would say for diplomats from other countries as well, is, is that you try to make things a little bit better. 
Um, and that makes me, you know, no doubt in your mind, you know, an incrementalist and, um, you know, everything doesn't get, get accomplished. But I think it's an honorable thing to try to move things forward um, and, 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 and make a little bit of progress. And as I say, as I ended my presentation, um, one of the efforts here is, is that it's a relay race. And so I took this baton from Dick Holbrook and I gave, I'm going to give it to somebody else. Um, and that's how, this, that's how my life works. Um, second thing is, um, in terms of, um, in terms of, of the, of Istanbul, um, gosh, I, I guess, you know, I'm sure that you, I'm sure that you heard what you heard. I would just with respect disagree with what you've said. I mean, again, it depends on where you set the standard. Uh, if you set the standard at Istanbul that all problems would be solved, uh, if you set the standard at Istanbul that voila, there'd be a structure for Afghanistan that would emerge from Istanbul, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think those are reasonable expectations. If, however, you compare the Istanbul document to what I think, and you'll have to help me here, what I believe was called the Declaration on Good Neighborly Relations, which came out of Kabul in December of 2002, I believe, was one page long. It had nothing in it compared to uh, the document in Istanbul. Um, and uh, again, you, I consider that to be an incremental but positive step forward. One, two, um, a lot of countries were there uh, trying to do the right thing. As you say, the Norwegians, but you know, a lot of credit here obviously goes to the Turks who drove this thing through. And then finally, as I said a little bit in my statement, um, there has been some important follow-up. Uh, to the Istanbul meeting, which I would, again, you'd have to help me, but I don't think there was very much follow-up to the Declaration on Good Neighborly Relations of December 2002. So, you know, again, you, you lay the foundations, uh, you try to be as uh, progressive and positive as possible, uh, and now it is the job uh, for people to take this on. In the back? We got Mike there? Okay, good. Thank you. Hello, Richard Kramer from the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, given President Karzai's actions and statements of late, some people feel that it's questionable the extent that we will even have a residual force in Afghanistan. And I'm wondering whether or not you're optimistic that indeed there will be troops post-2014 in the country, again, given statements of late. Thank you. Okay, let's take a couple um, more in the back. Okay. This right here on... Hi, Sarah Solomon. I'm a computer engineer who spent time in Afghanistan helping to collect biometric data. And yeah. so by biometric data, I mean fingerprints, uh -huh. iris, and facial recognition. And was wondering if you could speak to how that data might be used as a foreign policy offering in attempts to lead to security and stability in Afghanistan. A foreign policy offering? Uh-huh. And there was one more hand in the back that I saw. Okay, then we'll come right up here. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Raghu Goel from India Globe in Asia today. Uh, thanks very much for your analysis. Uh, and, uh, you have done a great job during your term. My question is that tomorrow, Pakistan, five years, they complete the full five years in government. Mm -hmm. What do you think the future of U.S.-Pakistan relations, the next five years, and as far as Afghanistan is concerned, what is the future of Afghanistan after NATO leaves? And finally, what do you think India should... India, what role do you think India should play after NATO leaves in Afghanistan? Thank you, sir. Uh, oops. 
good. Well, thank you for all three questions. Um, on the first, um, you know, I, I will let President Karzai speak for himself. Um, I, you know, if you say to me, uh, do I think there are going to be U.S. forces in Afghanistan on January 1, uh, 2014? I, I do. Uh, I think that the, uh, the negotiations for the bilateral security agreement led on our side by Ambassador Jim Warlick and on the uh, Afghan side by Ambassador Hakimi, the Afghan ambassador to Washington, uh, not going to be easy, uh, but I think they'll be completed. Um, so yes, I think there will be some uh, effort there because it's important to the United States uh, that uh, the objectives that the president laid out, the five lines of effort, sort of continue on. Um, and so I think, I think that's important. Um, second thing is on the, on the issue of data, um, well, I appreciate, first of all, your, your time and your service in Afghanistan. Thank you. I mean, it seems to me that that kind of biometric data uh, has lots of different kinds of possibilities. It has possibilities as Afghanistan, for example, strengthens its border security. Uh, it has uh, possibilities um, for, for, uh, for pe- as people travel, you know, come and go. I, I came back from Brussels yesterday, and, you know, you now come to the United States, and biometric data is how you get into the United States through the Global Entry Program. So, you know, you can see sort of all of those uses. I think what you, what you talk about, though, if you'd allow me just to sort of expand on your question a little bit, um, which is that to go back to the fundamental issues here of governance and, and, rule, and rule of law, because the biometric data that you collected kind of is, is part of a larger uh, effort uh, to kind of have the rule of law kind of af- go in Afghanistan. And I would say, you know, we talk a lot about the rule of law. And that's an important thing. Um, but believe me, uh, it's also hugely, hugely connected uh, to, uh, for example, the, F- the, 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 the point I may, I may try to make to you all about the New Silk Road, about the sort of commerce and all of this. You know, when you sit with an American company and you talk to them about the possibilities of investing in Afghanistan or the possibilities of, Afga- of, of investing in Pakistan, what do mostly they say? Well, they say, well, ooh, the security, that's sort of a question, but we're not so worried about that. What are they interested in? They're interested in the rule of law. And they're interested in dispute resolution. And they're interested in, you know, the commercial kind of law uh, in the area. And they're, they're interested in things like build, operate, transfer laws and build, operate, own laws. In other words, what's the structure um, in which they're asking their boards of directors uh, to make these investments? Um, and so these kinds of efforts that you made and the geologic survey made and a lot of people throughout the government made, I think are supportive of that rule of law aspect of this. And it isn't just rule of law, believe me, on the human rights side, it's very important, but the rule of law is also a fundamental aspect for this new Silk Road and going forward uh, on that vision as well. Um, finally, on, in, on, on India, uh, on, on the three questions, uh, first of all, the future of U.S.-Pakistan relations. Uh, before I answer that, I would just put your parentheses in there as well. As I said in my uh, talk, and Jessica and I were talking before this session, I think it's very important that uh, what happens in Pakistan now over the next few weeks, this election occurs, uh, you know, the parliament, as you said, finishes its five-year term, goes on to another parliament five years. That's a really important thing. Um, and I think Americans ought to pay attention to that, and I'm sure people in India will pay attention to it as well. If you ask me about the future of U.S.-Pakistan relations, I mean, obviously, um, as uh, we've talked about here uh, already, uh, the US pa- future of U.S.-Pakistan relations is obviously dependent upon what happens in Afghanistan uh, in, in the near term. Um, but I would say to you that if over time uh, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship could be one, as I say, in which Pakistan and the United States are able to systematically identify their shared interests and act on them together, that would be a positive thing. Uh, secondly, if over time 
uh, Pakistan and the United States could move from a relationship really founded on aid uh, into a relationship founded more on trade and uh, market access, uh, for example. Uh, that would be a very positive thing. Um, so I think there are, there are real possibilities uh, out there, and, and, and I hope that Americans will keep working on them. Now, you know, some of that requires changes on our part. I mean, it's easy for me to say, oh, well, we'll have a relationship based on market access. You know, that depends also, of course, on changes on our side in terms of being willing to allow more uh, Pakistani exports, for example, of textiles. And that's hard, and I recognize that. But, you know, this is a mutual conversation between the two countries. Um, finally, on your point, I'm on India. Um, I'd make two points if I could, sir. First, I don't think that you should kind of just report this by saying NATO's leaving in 2014. Now, NATO, as currently constituted, ISAF, it'll change. It won't be the same uh, in 2015. But the idea, sir, that there will be no international effort in Afghanistan on January 1, 2015, I believe is wrong. Um, and that's the message that Istanbul, Bonn, Chicago, and Tokyo tried to convey to Afghans. Uh, it's, the, it's the effort that people now are trying to convey to Afghans and to the international community. And so when you phrase a question by saying, what's India going to do when everybody leaves? With respect, I don't think everybody is leaving. And therefore, my second answer to your question is, is that India can be part of this larger effort to have a secure, stable, prosperous Afghanistan inside of a secure, stable, prosperous region. And look what India is doing today. I mean, for example, there's some training of Afghan security forces that takes place in India. I think that's a really important thing. And, and, and when I was the special representative, we supported that. Um, Indian investment in Afghanistan is substantial. Um, and I think that's important. Uh, India has pledged a long-term um, economic assistance to Afghanistan. That's also important. And so, you know, the logical thing then is to say, oh my, well, you know, what are we going to do then about Pakistani views of these things. And I think the more that India and Pakistan are working together, the better off that's going to be as well. Final point is, and that is, I think India has a huge and important role to play in the success of the New Silk Road. I mean, don't forget, it's trying to connect Central Asian economies with South Asian economies. What's that mean? It means the economic success of India, Central Asian producers into Indian markets and vice versa with Afghanistan and Pakistan in the center. So uh, I had the good fortune while I was the special representative to visit India on any number of occasions. I took good advice from uh, my counterpart uh, there uh, and, uh, and enjoyed it very much. And so uh, I think India's got an important role to play in all this. Yes, sir. I'm Joe Montfield, a retired FSO. I met Mark when he was an eager young staff assistant in the Near East Bureau, and I'm so tremendously proud of uh, what you've done and what you represent, a uh, concept of integrated problem-solving transformational diplomacy that is just not, we're just, I'm not aware of it. Uh, I'm, um, and I think you've just given a very strong recommendation for Hillary Clinton's uh, candidacy for, for president in a few years. She's not gotten the credit uh, in the farewell descriptions of her her uh, period as Secretary of State, not gotten the credit for this kind of creative, integrated thinking that's so mature and grown up and really... Uh, I guess I, the question is, um, <coughs> do you think it's possible uh, to educate our own press corps and the, 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 you know, the commentators and the bloggers to think in terms of integrated, mature, problem-solving diplomacy. 
by your nature, you'll say uh, yes. But I think <laughs> you're going to have wow. to do a lot of the work yourself. Wow. I hope you do a lot of speaking. I, I, if I may just add on to that, because I just to, to wind up our, our session, because uh, I was struck how strong your kind of a subterranean theme here beyond, beyond South Asia is about the importance of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly for the last decade, we've, in these two wars, spent a disproportionate amount of public attention in this country about how many troops, on what day, um, and a disproportionately little amount of attention on what the heck is our political um, uh, uh, strategy in either Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, how do we change that? How, uh, and certainly for the last 20 years, the funding for the the State Department and the civilian agencies of our international affairs has suffered um, tremendously and wildly inadequate. What I mean, uh, stepping back from South Asia for a minute, you've had 30 years of, uh, of distinguished service here. Is there a way you see that we can shift the balance again and between yeah. diplomacy and, and, and military uh, arms of our foreign policy? Right. Um, well, Joe, thank you very much, and thanks uh, to all of you. Um, first, I, I think we should I think we should be really clear here about diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy is obviously a hugely important thing, um, and it's a very important national security tool of the United States. But diplomacy is not the answer to every question. And so I don't want anybody to stand up here today saying, oh, if we only did diplomacy, everything would be fine. That's not right. Because diplomacy isn't going anywhere unless it's backed by force. And so I think the challenge, Jessica, is not to say, well, I'm going to choose diplomacy or I'm going to choose the military effort. It is going forward to have this national strategy which takes into account um, both at the same, at the same time. And so, Joe, I appreciate what you say. But number one, as I say, diplomacy is not the answer to every question. Diplomacy has got to be backed by force. And the other thing is, the other thing I think that people who speak, uh, you know, uh, uh, who try to speak out for the diplomatic effort have to also recognize it's perfectly natural that when you have 100,000 young men and women in combat in a country like Afghanistan, of course that's going to be the main focus of attention, and for goodness sakes, it ought to be. Um, and so that doesn't bother me. That, that, I think, is not something that you, you can't just say, oh, look at me, look at me. You have to say, as we tried to do here, that there's, this, there's, there's a diplomatic campaign. We chose the word campaign because we wanted people to think of it as a national strategy. We wanted to, uh, if she'd allow me, you know, answer the criticism, that very good criticism that Corey Shockey made in her book, you know, uh, State of Disrepair, Can Diplomats Carry Out a Strategy? Well, I think so. And I, I hope she would consider th- this one to be. Um, the other thing is, is let's, let's also remember that we're building on a lot of experience with this now. So, you know, yes, I had the good fortune to run this campaign from 2011 to 2012, but those of you who followed, for example, the whole of government effort called Plan Columbia will know that Plan Columbia was also an effort to draw all of the aspects of national power uh, together. And, and I think, if you'd allow me, quite successfully as well over a period of a number of administrations. Um, and so th- I don't claim to, this is not first, it's not only, it builds on a lot of effort that's made by other people. I, I do think there's a possibility to just keep talking about it and people will 
you know, make what they will of it. And that, that's, all, that's all I can do. You know, Karen and I talk, talked about this for a long time over many, many different kinds of, of, of issues. And so, you know, we appreciate, we appreciate the fact that, you know, people are, are prepared to consider this diplomacy. And I hope they're prepared to judge this diplomatic campaign, as Jessica said, both on its substance and on its kind of, and on its aspect of diplomacy. So the question of, you know, choosing, um, I'd make two points. One is, is to be fair here, um, and that is that uh, there has been a substantial increase in the amount of resources at the State Department, really from Secretary Powell, Secretary Rice, um, uh, Secretary Clinton. And so, the, you know, there are more people and more and, and more and more, more resources. Um, the question now is, can those resources be uh, really focused on what you described as a whole of government uh, effort to to make diplomacy successful? And I, I believe that they can. And again, I end with uh, just trying to avoid, as I generally do, kind of make these choices. You know, you're either for the military or for diplomacy. It's just not how it works. Um, it's a whole of government effort. It's a combined effort. Um, diplomacy without uh, force isn't going anywhere. I don't think force without diplomacy goes anywhere. That's got to be the teachings of, you know, Rupert Smith and his book, The Utility of Force, or the Philip Bobbitt that I quoted, a number of other people. And so I think those things are, that's the goal, is to have an integrated national strategy which takes all of these things into account simultaneously. All right. Well, I, uh, I hope everybody will... Um will join me in, not just in thanking uh, Ambassador Grossman for the insights he delivered today, but for 30 years of extraordinary service to this country. Thank you. Thank you.